0: Jeremiah 9 verses 1 through 38. You also gave them kingdoms and peoples, and allotted them to them as a boundary. You took their possessions of the land of Sahon, the king of Heshbon, and the land of Og, the king of Bashan. You made their sons numerous as stars of heaven, and you brought them into the land which you had told their fathers to enter and possess. So their sons entered and possessed the land. And you subdued before them the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites. And you gave them into their hand with their kings and their peoples of the land to do with them as they desired. They captured fortified cities and a fertile land. They took possession of houses full of every good thing, hewn cisterns, vineyards, olive groves, fruit trees in abundance. So they ate, were filled, and grew fat, and reveled in your great goodness. But they became disobedient and rebelled against you, and cast your law behind their backs, and killed your prophets who had admonished them so that they might return to you, and they committed great blasphemies. Therefore, you delivered them into the hand of their oppressors who oppressed them. But when they cried to you in the, name of the, in the time of their distress, you heard from heaven. And according to your great compassion, you gave them deliverers who delivered them from the hand of their
1: oppressors. But as soon as they had rest, they did evil again before you. Therefore, you abandoned them to the hand of their enemies, so that they ruled over them. When they cried again to you, you heard from heaven, and many times you rescued them according to your compassion, and admonished them in order to turn them back to your law. They acted arrogantly, and did not listen to your commandments, but sinned against your ordinances, by which, if a man observes them, he shall live. And they turned a stubborn shoulder, and stiffened their neck, and would not listen." However, you bore with them for many years and admonished them by your spirit through your prophets, yet they would not give ear. Therefore, you gave them into the hand of the peoples of the lands. Nevertheless, in your great compassion, you did not make an end of them or forsake them, for you are a gracious and compassionate God.
2: Now, therefore, our God, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God, who keeps covenant and loving kindness. Do not let all the hardship seem insignificant before you, which has come upon us, our kings, our princes, our priests, and our prophets, our fathers, and all on your people, from the days of the kings of Assyria to this day. However, you are just in all that has come upon us, for you have dealt faithfully, but have acted wickedly. For our kings, our leaders, our priests, and our fathers have not kept your law or paid attention to your commandments and your admonitions. With which you have admonished them. But they and their own kingdom, with your great goodness which you gave them, with the broad and the rich land you have set before them, did not serve you or turn from their evil deeds. Behold, we are slaves today as to the land which you gave to our fathers to eat of its fruit and its bounty. Behold, we are slaves in it. Its abundant produce is for the kings whom you have set over us because of our sins. They also rule over our bodies and over our cattle as they please, so we are in great distress. Now because of all this, we are making an agreement in writing, and on the sealed documents are the names of our leaders, our Levites and our priest. This
3: is the word of the Lord.: Thanks, be to God. Father, as we come to your word now and see again the larger picture. The, the great summary of the great story of the Old Testament. Lord, I pray that you would write it in large letters across our hearts. May we see ourselves in this story. And may we better understand our place uh, in history and before you. And uh, know better how to sing your song. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Imagine for a moment that you have a friend. ...with no clue who John Williams is. John Williams composed some of the most iconic film scores of the last half century. Your friend amazingly has never heard the music of Star Wars... ...or Harry Potter, or Jurassic Park, Home Alone, Superman, Jaws, E.T., or Indiana Jones... Your friend has never seen the films or heard a single bar of any of the music. You invite this friend to go with you to a John Williams night at a local theater where his greatest hits are all going to be played live one after another. There's Leia's theme and then Hedwig's theme. There's the Raiders' March followed by the Imperial March. You're very much looking forward to the concert And looking forward to introducing your friend to all this great music. But when you get there, you discover the reason why the tickets were so easy to come by. The orchestra is entirely made up of children who are just beginning to learn their instruments. And so the concert is predictably chaotic. Sometimes you just want to cover your ears and wince aloud. It is that bad. You know all the songs by heart, so you can tell what the children are trying to play. But knowing the tune also makes every wrong and sour note stand out all the more. As you leave the concert, your friend grabs you by the shoulder and says, I hope I don't offend you, friend, but this John Williams guy is rubbish. That's the worst stuff I've ever heard. I'm glad I've stayed away from his music all these years. And with a self satisfied smile, your friend walks off, leaving you just shaking your head. Given the opportunity to respond, we all know what our friend needs to hear. We all know it. It's not John Williams who is rubbish, friend, but those playing his music. The music itself is beautiful. The musicians playing it, those are the ones who are totally making a mess of it. The faulty playing of a children's orchestra doesn't tarnish the mature genius of John Williams one little bit. You can see that, can't you? You can see that. Everyone should be able to see that. We should all know that these two things can both be true. John Williams' music can be incredibly good... And those attempting to play it can be incredibly bad. Or to tweak the image slightly, the song itself can be good and beautiful, but the singers can be wholly out of tune. This is a very helpful parallel made by John Dixon, an Australian Anglican. He put it this way. He said, Jesus has given the world a beautiful song. His people, however, have often sung it out of tune. Sometimes God's people have been the most discordant voices of all. But the song remains good and beautiful. And if you've truly heard it, you won't be able to get it out of your head. As we come to chapter 9 and finish up Nehemiah's cliff notes to the Old Testament we will see this reality again and again. God has given his people a beautiful song, but they have repeatedly sung it out of tune. This was often the case for God's Old Testament people, as Nehemiah 9 tells us. And this is also the case for God's New Testament people. Church history contains many awful orchestra performances by professing christians performances where if that's all you knew of christianity you'd mistakenly conclude that this jesus guy was a rubbish composer you conclude his song is harsh and abusive and about striving for power based upon the lives of many claiming to be playing his music But a big reason why these bad moments for the church feel so bad and so very wrong is because we know them to be so completely at odds and out of tune with Jesus' song. Jesus' song is good and beautiful, but people in the past have often sung it poorly. And before we start wagging our fingers at them, at people in the past, we need to look at ourselves. In the present, we need to examine our own past. How much have our lives mirrored the often backsliding history of Israel? How often does our story reflect the often attitudined story of church history? Do we have our own periods of self righteous inquisitions and misguided crusades? Do we have our own judges' cycle of sin? correction, and calling out to God. I think if we're honest with ourselves, we'd see a lot more of our story than we would like to mirrored here in the story of Israel. We'd see a lot more of our personal history mirroring both the good and the bad of church history. These are things that we need to see, and God gives us Nehemiah chapter 9 in order to help us see them. So, We're going to take an honest look at ourselves, at the church this morning, and we're going to see see that and do that through the lens of Nehemiah chapter 9. We've seen some big moments in this chapter already, some major themes. I'm not going to recover any ground that we already covered last week in the first half of chapter 9, but suffice it to say, we've covered a lot of the most important events in the Old Testament already in the week before. Last week, we covered... The creation account, the call of Abraham, the captivity and exodus, Sinai and the giving of the law, the wilderness wanderings and rebellions. This inspired recap reminds us of all these important historical events. And then Nehemiah frames all these events in the way he wants us to understand them, what we're supposed to take away from them. Nehemiah 9 doesn't hesitate to highlight The sin in the midst of the story. That's one of the big themes. There is a lot of sin here. This inspired summary tells us that the singers charged with singing God's song have often sang it out of tune or chose to sing another tune entirely. Today, we're picking up our story, our inspired recap of the Old Testament. As the wilderness wanderings come to an end, And the people of Israel stand on the edge of the promised land. The days of Moses and the events of the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, those are over. Now we enter into the events of Joshua and the conquest of the land. Here's the first of three headings this morning as we finish off Nehemiah chapter 9. Our first heading is the Joshua conquest. We see that in verses 22 through 25. Uh, The conquest under Joshua. God told Moses that he would not be the one to lead the people into the land promised to Abraham's descendants. Upon Moses' death, leadership passed to Joshua. Under Joshua, a new generation did what the previous generation turned back from doing. Let's remember this. I think you all know this. But remember, God's people stood upon the edge of the promised land already. Forty years earlier... And had a great idea. Let's form a committee. A committee to go in and spy out the land. And based upon the majority report of that search committee, the people became afraid. The majority reported that the people of the land were strong. And their cities were walled and well protected. They said this land and its people would devour us if we went in. So the people became afraid and turned back. And God let a whole generation live out their lives and pass away in the wilderness. An entire generation died out before he brought their descendants back to the edge of the promised land again. It shouldn't surprise us, therefore, to see the same thing happen in church history. There can be generational darkness... There have been periods in church history where the darkness has lasted for many generations. But post-tenembrous lux, after darkness, light. That's the motto of the Reformation. Post-tenembrous lux, after darkness, light. God revives his work in the midst of the years and retunes the hearts of another generation to sing his song more faithfully. With the conquest under Joshua, God did this. God followed a mostly faithless generation with a mostly faithful generation. Where one generation turned back and complained, the next generation went forth and conquered. It can happen that way. God can make it happen that way and make it happen that way again. I think we're all probably prone to seeing the up-and-coming generation after us as being largely in the dark about so many things. It's probably our default perspective. But Nehemiah 9 reminds us that that's not always the case. There can be generational darkness and blind spots, for sure. But God can also raise up the next generation... To see the blind spots of the generation before and sing his song in better tune. Our pride may not like it, but shouldn't we want it to be this way? For our children and our children's children to have more light and to be more faithful. But even in the darkest moments of history, God has never left himself without a witness. In Israel's history... There was a time, remember this, there was a time when Elijah, the prophet, bewailed to God that the sons of Israel have forsaken your covenant. They've torn down your altars. They've killed your prophets with the sword, and I alone am left, and they are seeking my life to take it away. But you remember how God responds, no, no. I have kept for myself 7,000 who have never bowed the knee to Baal. To a false God. Even in times of generational darkness, God always keeps for himself a witness to the truth. There are always points of light. During the wilderness rebellions and wanderings of God's people, they still had lights, like Moses, sometimes literally his face shining like a light from being in the presence of God. The people still had bright lights among them, like Caleb, Joshua and Aaron, living in a time of spiritual darkness doesn't preclude the existence of bright lights. Oftentimes, those scattered bright lights shine out the brighter because of the contrast. This was true in Israel's history, and it's true in the church's history as well. If you were to survey the Middle Ages... Things can look pretty dark it's called the Dark Ages after all. Uh, the church very often sounded out of very out of tune. but there are also lights scattered in the darkness there's Francis of Assisi over here there's John. Wycliffe over there, there's the Lollards preaching the gospel over here, there's John Huss preaching over there, there's Miles Cloverdale translating the Bible for the very first time over here. Even in the dark ages, there are points of light. There are singers who are returning to the song. And God sometimes is well pleased to use those voices to retune the hearts of whole generations. He's pleased to use those points of light to rekindle the flame of faith in an up-and-coming generation. Joshua's conquest teaches us that that's possible. But it also teaches us this. Even when there is generational faithfulness and obedience, there will also be instances of devastating disobedience. Do you remember the story of Achan in Joshua chapter 7? The conquest is underway, acting in faith and looking like a fool, this generation marches around Jericho for seven days before the walls come a-tumbling down. But in the midst of a miraculous victory, Achan, one man, disobeyed God's ban on plundering the city. He couldn't resist taking some loot and hiding it in his tent. And because of Achan, there was sin in the camp. His disobedience had a devastating impact when Israel came up against the next city. There, the people, the people of Israel fled before the people of Ai, and people died. The sin of Achan had a deadly effect on morale and on the mission of God's people at the time. Israel had its Achan, but there have been many achins in the history of the church. I'm sure you could name some modern Achans, some modern church leaders, whose sin, whose abuse of others, whose misuse of power, whose desire for wealth has had a deadly effect both on the morale and the mission. Of the church. It may have looked for a while like they were singing on key, but they weren't. Jesus' song lifts up the very people they put down and victimized and abused. Christ's song says it is better to have a millstone tied around your neck and be drowned in the depths of the sea than to cause one of these little ones. To stumble. The sins we see in church history and among church leaders feel more egregious because they're so completely at odds with Christ's song. The medieval crusader who murders and plunders with the emblem of the cross on his shield is completely at odds with the song of the cross. The song of the cross. The cross is the symbol of laying down your life for the good of your enemies. Not taking life for your own material gain and good. But it is easy to call out the abuses in church history. Precisely because we know the song Christians ought to be singing. We can recognize lines that are bent Precisely because we know the straight. We know Jesus. We know when someone is singing his song faithfully and when they are not. But even among faithful singers, faithful churches, faithful Christians, we see a cycle emerge. Here we come to our second heading the Judges' cycle. The Judges' cycle. Look at verse 26 and following verse 26 says but they've entered to the land they've conquered but then what happened but they became disobedient and rebelled against you and cast your law behind their backs and killed your prophets who had admonished them so that they might return to you and they committed great blasphemies therefore you delivered them into the hands of their oppressors who oppressed them But when they cried out to you in the time of their distress, you heard from heaven, and according to your great compassion, you gave them deliverers, judges, who delivered them from the hand of their oppressors. But as soon as they had rest, they did evil again before you. Therefore you abandoned them to the hand of their enemies, so they ruled over them. When they cried again to you, you heard from heaven, and many times you rescued them according to your compassion. Here we see what has been called the judge's cycle, which goes like this. Things are good, and in the good times, people forget God. They forget the song they're supposed to be singing, and they start singing their own song. Everyone starts doing what is right in their own eyes. Everyone starts singing however they want, no matter how selfish or how manipulative it is. God speaks through the prophets to warn and correct the people over what they're doing, but the people don't listen. They persecute and kill the messengers instead. Then God turns the people over to judgment. Other nations come conquering and oppressing. And at their lowest point, the people come to their senses, and they come back to God confessing how they've rebelled and how they've strayed from his good and beautiful song. With their repentance, God raises up a deliverer, a judge, who restores peace. And the good times are back again until the people once again forget God, (laughs) and the whole cycle starts over again. This cycle of sin, consequences, Repentance, salvation happens again and again and again in the Old Testament. And God again and again shows mercy and raises up one judge after another whenever his people repent. These judges are characters like, what's his name? Othniel, Ehud, Deborah, Gideon, Jephthah, Samson. This is a pretty diverse cast of characters, really. There's male and female, foolish and wise, right-handed, left-handed. Looking at you, Ehud, you know that, left-handed blow. Uh, You know that story, don't you? Uh, God has also raised up a pretty diverse cast of characters at key moments in church history. Characters like Martin Luther, Jonathan Edwards, John Wesley, to name a few. And there are many whose names you and I wouldn't know. Some of these were smarter than some of the others. Some of these were more articulate than others. Some were more theologically grounded than others. But usually the key figures in every revival, every great awakening in history have this in common. They see the tide of truth going out in their day. And they set themselves, by God's grace, to pray and push back against it. They see the sin and the apathy and the hostility around them. And they set themselves to boldly proclaim a better hope and defiantly sing a better song. But no one sings Jesus' song perfectly. Martin Luther had an anti-Semitic streak in him. Jonathan Edwards owned slaves. John Wesley had a marriage we wouldn't wish on anyone. If John Wesley was here, I would not let him speak at our marriage enrichment weekend that's coming up this month. Everyone is singing Jesus' song off-key in some area, including you, including me. We all are still in need of repentance. We all stand in need of a deliverer. I wonder this morning how much of your life feels at times like you're in your own personal judge's cycle, a cycle of sin, consequences, repentance, fresh deliverance. How much does the story of your life feel like a microcosm of Old Testament Israel's story? Some of that feeling is probably to be expected. We do sin. We do sing the song poorly in many areas. Repentance isn't a one and done thing, but a continual state of the heart in response to our sin and failures. In some ways, we will never outgrow this cycle and rhythm of repentance and renewal. But we are also called to strive for more, to strive to sing the song better, to play our instruments more faithfully, not to be the reason someone says that Jesus guy's teaching must be rubbish. Just look at his followers. Look at that church. Look at those people. They're performing like a bunch of children just learning their instruments. We should strive to do better than that. We can do better than that. We can sing Jesus' song with increasing faithfulness. And the final bit of Nehemiah 9 points the way. Here's our last point the requested renewal. The requested renewal. Here is the only request made in the entire chapter of Nehemiah and I. See if you can catch it. Look at verse 32. Now, therefore, our God, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God, who keeps covenant and loving kindness, do not let all the hardships seem insignificant before you, which has come upon us, our kings, our princes, our priests, our prophets, our fathers, and all our all your people, from the days of the kings of Assyria to this day. However, "'You are just in all that has come upon us, "'for you have dealt faithfully, but we have acted wickedly. "'For our kings, our leaders, our priests, our fathers "'have not kept your law or paid attention to your commandments "'and your admonitions with which you have admonished them. "'But they, in their own kingdom, with your great goodness, "'which you gave them, with the broad and rich land "'which you set before them, did not serve you "'or turn from their evil deeds.'" Behold, we are slaves today. Did you catch the request? There is one request there. There's a lot of confession. One request. It's in verse 32, and it's this. Do not let all the hardships seem insignificant before you. Nehemiah is essentially saying, yes, we've sinned, and we deserve every bit of hardship But do see and do show mercy, Lord. Don't let it be insignificant in your sight. Please let all the hard things lead to some kind of renewal. The request here is an appeal to God's compassion. We don't deserve it. Our nation doesn't deserve it. Our times don't deserve it. Our world doesn't deserve it. But see how very bad things are. See how despised we are. See how badly we're singing your song and revive your many mercies, O Lord, in the life of your people. This is the request Nehemiah is making on behalf of God's Old Testament people. And this is the kind of request we need to be making today as well. This is the kind of request that God apparently wants his people to be making. God, we don't know your plan, but renew your mercies in our land. Please cause us to sing your song more faithfully than we ever have before. Because the world needs it. In the eyes of the world, the church is daily losing credibility by singing all the wrong songs. By singing political jingles instead of Christ's song, by making spiritually compromising plays for power, by singing songs that affirm the pride and arrogance of our cultural idols, the church is actually undercutting her credibility. By not singing clear notes where we should for the marginalized and abused, for the weak, for the defenseless, for the immigrant. For the stranger, by singing Jesus' song poorly in a thousand different ways, the church is hurt and maligned, and we are hurt. Perhaps you've been hurt personally and deeply by those claiming to be God's people, but who have abusively sung Christ's song in your hearing completely out of tune. If so, I'm sorry. I am very sorry. But I beg you, like the friend attending the John Williams concert, don't mistake the singer's performance for the song itself. Don't let your friends foolishly mistake one church's childish, immature performance for the final verdict on Jesus as a composer. John Williams isn't any less brilliant for someone's bad performance of his music. Jesus isn't any less the way, the truth, and the life for some church leaders' poor reflection of him. The history of Israel and the history of the church are full of people playing God's song badly. But... We can spot the bad notes precisely because we hear the goodness and beauty of Christ's original song. And once you've heard it, by God's grace, his song will never get out of your head. Father, we confess as Nehemiah confessed that we are a people often straying, often turning our back on what is good and beautiful and true, often being persuaded and enticed by the idols of the world, by power and popularity and praise. But Lord, we acknowledge and confess. We desire to sing your song more faithfully. Lord, make us here at Alberta Baptist a church that increasingly, day by day, year by year, increasingly sings your song as it is meant to be sung. Lord, we look to a great high priest, a great shepherd, a great composer whose work is good and beautiful and true. May we all grow from from children into maturity. From those who don't know how to play one note to those who play and run well. By your grace, make us good disciples and followers of Jesus. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. About to sing a song of response, and this offer is open every Sunday, but occasionally I make it explicit. The altar here is open. You want to come pray? Come pray. Pray for yourself, pray for our. Our our nation, pray for our, our world uh, to sing Christ's song more faithfully. The altar's open. Uh, you have an invitation to come.